Welcome to Kiki TV, and I'm so happy today to be sitting with Todd Caldecott, who I'm really just meeting for the first time, though Todd has an amazing blog, and he's a trained herbalist, and he's the founder, and he runs the Dogwood School of, help me out, Todd. Yes, and um, Todd writes extensively and uh, teaches extensively. I also know that you have a very dedicated teaching style and he's a practitioner of herbalism and Ayurveda. And I came across your work because I had some serious health problems and had seen many Ayurvedic specialists. I wanted to stay aligned with my yoga practice and my sadhana. No one had ever told me that meat as a 35 year vegetarian, often vegan, uh, no one in India, no Ayurvedic person over there or here in the United States told me that could help me when the great texts say that meat is a great rasayan, it's a great uh, rejuvenative, and um, that it can indeed heal. So I found my way to your blog and really enjoyed your writing on that. And I guess, tell us a little bit about yourself, because I don't want to give you a, a short introduction. You, sir, I want you to introduce yourself. And then let's talk about the tradition of Ayurveda, that it's not vegetarian, it never was vegetarian. And if we are reducing it down that, to that, certainly we're not going to get all the benefits of this amazing system. Right, sure. Well, uh, you know, right out of high school, I, I was a film and television actor. And that's something that I did for just under a decade. And um, it was pretty early on in my career when I was 20 that uh, I, I kind of got fed up with the industry and decided I would take a year off and saved a bit of money that I had and went to India and traveled around for a year. And I had accumulated just a few thousand dollars and I thought that was more than enough, you know, considering how much your average Indian survives on each year. It seemed like I was com comparatively quite wealthy uh, so I went to India and I just was uh, traveling as a budget traveler, staying at the cheapest places, you know, just, you know, there are no tourists there. I would eat at the cheapest restaurants. And while I tried to maintain reasonable levels of hygiene, you know, I, you know, you can't really see microorganisms and it might look clean, but suffice to say, I, I got very sick. I had both amoebic and bacillary dysentery and I came quite close to maybe not making it. Uh, and uh, at some point smartened up and took some antibiotics that I had in my med kit. And I, you know, I didn't know anything about Ayurveda and I was all by myself. I managed to cobble together some version of health. Uh, certainly still was suffering from this chronic digestive issue, but continued my travels all across India into Pakistan, parts of Afghanistan, uh, into Iran and into Turkey. I finally on made buses? Were you on the old Silk Road? Basically trains, buses, hitchhiking. Wonderful. Uh, and I've got all kinds of interesting stories about my adventures there. But suffice it to say, when I got to Istanbul, I, I saw my first McDonald's and I had a culture shock and I jumped on a plane and I flew back to Sri Lanka. And then I spent some time studying Buddhism and meditation and uh, yeah, I wound up my trip after traveling around for a year. But I came back to Canada with a chronic GI disorder. 
I sought the help of a number of different practitioners. Nobody really seemed to be able to put their finger on what it is that I had. Uh, the the uh, diagnostic testing at that point was inconclusive. It wasn't until I met an Ayurveda physician, ironically enough, who uh, sat down with me and gave me a treatment protocol to deal with my health issue. And it was just a matter of a few months when my health had a big turnaround. And I discovered when I was traveling in India, because I was also a vegetarian at the time, that because I was eating out for the most part, that when I would eat vegetable biryani or other foods, that it would just go right through me and my weight was dropping and I, I couldn't control my health issue. And I, I found that when I elected out of desperation to go to a Muslim establishment, eat, eat kebab, chicken curry or mutton curry, <laughs> always a soupy dish, that I could hold the food in my gut. Hmm. You know, I wasn't having the, the chronic diarrhea. So I had an early experience and I had learned that in order to just keep weight on and to, and to ease my gut issues that I should incorporate some meat. It was just from trial and error. So when I met with this Ayurveda physician, Dr. Sukumaran, who was a classically trained Kerala physician, who very much was a religious Hindu, uh, I asked him, I said, so do you think I should eat meat? And he just looked at me and he nodded. Hmm. And but he wouldn't say anything to the affirmative. And then that was it. And that was all the affirmation that I needed to, to ethically incorporate meat into my diet. Uh, interestingly enough, when I questioned him later on about that, uh, he always denied telling me that mm. uh, I, I should eat meat. It was me asking, so it wasn't him telling, mm -hmm. but also it was just a silent assent. It wasn't, it wasn't something that he was obviously supporting but it made a big difference uh, in my own health issues and helped turn things around. I also, in my training as a clinical herbalist, it was a fairly detailed training in nutrition and the, the orientation and focus of the training in nutrition was essentially to tell people, to counsel people to become vegetarian. And so that's something that I did when I graduated and I was seeing patients, I had this, academic bias towards vegetarianism. You can point to all kinds of research. Which suggests Was Paul that, Pitchford or one of the... Well, before him, you know, because mm -hmm. Paul Pitchford. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that came later. But I, I discovered in my practice that I wasn't getting anywhere with a lot of patients when I was recommending a vegetarian diet. I wasn't seeing the improvements. And, you know, I... I have a, a philosophy of my practice is that I start with the, the basics. And what I discovered early on is, is that if people aren't willing to make the kind of changes that I think they need to make in their diet and their lifestyle, but especially diet, they're probably not going to get better. And that medicine isn't really going to shift it significantly. So I had this focus already. Of the opposite of big uh, med, big pharma, big med here is they start yeah. with the medicine. And, yeah, um, they tailor the, the diet to the medicine, right. to diet, for example. So I, I, I began to do some research and find out, well, what is, uh, is the human diet? Like, how has the human diet evolved over the last several million years? And what I came to about 20 odd years ago was that the original diet of humanity was an omnivorous diet. And depending on the latitude and the people that we're talking about, 
could contain uh, relatively small amounts of animal produce, but especially as you move northward in latitude, increasing amounts of animal produce in the diet. And in fact, in some diets, like for example, the Inuit, it's pretty much all animal product mm -hmm. because you know, plant material that grows up in their territory. So this is what people now refer to as the Paleolithic diet. And I know this diet has become quite popular. And I think that there are some misunderstandings about this diet. But nonetheless, uh, I began to employ this dietary strategy or approach in particular for people with metabolic issues, with autoimmune issues. And I found that diet had a dramatic effect on people's health such that often medicine wasn't even necessary. And you think for like a, a diagnosis of something like, you know, um, Hashimoto's or for rheumatoid arthritis uh, or some other metabolic issue that, you know, medicine is required. And I found that, well, if the diet was correct for these people and, you know, relieving myself of the burden that there was a particular form of diet that was suitable to everyone, I was able to choose and fashion diets that included animal produce and eliminated certain types of foods like cereal grains and legumes, particularly in autoimmune disease, that I, I saw patients had a big turnaround in their health. And just to add, uh, we are also told that these conditions are irreversible. So not only would rheumatoid arthritis need to be treated with drugs for life, it is thought to be irreversible. And so you've been able to see by removing the legumes, certain grains, then actually it does reverse and disappear. And what a yeah. relief, what a relief. Or that the, the disease is conditional upon these, these, these factors in the diet. And so if they go back to eating those foods, then of course their symptoms, issues come back. So it is, you know, kind of like, you know, an alcoholic, you could, you know, you can be an alcoholic and if you don't consume alcohol, then it's not an issue, but it's still an issue in the sense that if you, if you start consuming it, then you'll have that problem. So I wouldn't say it's a cure, but our version of a cure uh, is, I think, a little odd. You know, the way the pharmaceutical industry markets the term cure, like when you see advertisements for certain um, immunosuppressant drugs that are used to treat disorders like Crohn's and colitis, the advertising is telling people, don't you wish you could eat cakes and pies and eat whatever you want with your friends in a, on a, for a Sunday brunch? So I'll, you know, here, take this medication and, and then you'll be able to, which is debatable anyway, but also it completely uh, undermines this whole uh, thesis that, you know, we have to select from the cornucopia of different foods that are out there, those which are suitable to us. This concept of sapnya in Ayurveda plays a very big role in my understanding of the application of diet. So these diseases still exist for those people, but if they make the correct changes, then they're able to stave off any signs or symptoms and remain healthy. So it's managed, it's managed through these certain yes. food emissions and certain food additions. Right. And I would consider it to be a cure, uh, but I would have to warn my patients about where is that line? You know, it's about, it's, uh, much of my dietary counseling relates to that is understanding what is that line and what happens when you cross just over it or how close can you get to it and find out the, what is the best, most suitable diet for them. And once they are grounded and established in that diet, because we all have reasons with family and friends and celebrations to birthdays explore. and weddings or 
And some people can't cross that line. It's a hard line. Right. And there may be certain phases in their treatment or in their recovery where they definitely can't cross it. But with the, with the correct treatment, I often find that once we established a, a balance and the patient is symptom and disease free, then, you know, then there is this ability to just cross that line periodically and create a new normal. And then if something happens, some aspect of the disease arises again, then you know, we, we, we just take that, those, those two steps back again and restore balance. So much of my focus around diet is, what is the diet that is appropriate to you, the one that makes you feel healthy and well? This is what we understand in, in Ayurveda as Hita Ahara, which is a wholesome diet. And that wholesome diet is always individualistic. It's based on so many different factors, on age, on gender, on your, on your, um, on your ancestry. Season, and your ancestry, right. Season. So you, and the, the big problem I think that gets promulgated in Ayurveda is a, this sort of one-size-fits-all approach. And it's kind of a dumbing down of the, the tenets of Ayurveda this wonderful flexible system becomes very dogmatic and rigid and people like yourself when coming face to face with that discover that it's not meeting our needs and then it, it it casts a poor light upon ayurveda but it's it's illegitimate because i do, i do not believe that that is what ayurveda is telling us to do i absolutely agree with you and um i had just of a quick note, I also was a professional actress, uh, okay. actor for many years, but had been involved in yoga from the very beginning from my studies. And I've traveled to India extensively, and I certainly know what those feelings of digestive distress are. On a recent trip to India, in sharing with some very important teachers of mine who are South Indian, who are Brahmin, and obviously vegetarian, that I wasn't able to eat these foods anymore. My one teacher, professor, he took me aside and he is, he's a lifelong sannyasi and a, a true meditator and uh, also a very rich academic and all the Brahminical upbringing. And he said to me, only we need eat this way, meaning South Indian, like Brahmins from his family, it is put upon us. It is, it is our responsibility. No one else need eat this way. And so for me, that was nice to have an acknowledgement from someone who I greatly respect to say it's, it's a religious, um, it's part of a religious tenet for people who are coming into contact with the Vedas or holders of certain you know, knowledge systems that they eat that way, but it's not a belief system. It need not be for anyone else. So we do see a bias in um, Ayurvedic doctors to have, it's almost like this unicorn, <laughs> the unicorn diet where everyone could just live on kitchery or something like that. And that there's a, there's something try doshik and everyone could eat this perfect purified food and be perfectly healthy with it. And when that's not happening for so many people, that mono diet, then um, they become more desperate and actually seem to move to narrower and narrower diets, like raw food vegan, rather than to turn back 
dig into the Charca Samhita and see that 200 animals <laughs> were eaten um, so, and are part of it. So tell me how, we, how you look at Ayurveda and how you share it in this, in this broader view or this more you know, vast mosaic uh, rather than what we're seeing today as a kind of a bowl of vegetarian <laughs> mush <laughs> with, with some spices to address dosha. Yeah, it's, it, uh, it really just undermines the sophistication that Ayurveda has at its disposal by creating these very simplistic paradigms. I mean, I'm, I'm all for simple, but there's a difference between simple and simplistic. And, you know, I might take, you know, and maybe sound arrogant, but I might take issue with your, uh, with the, with the fellow that you're mentioning about that it is only conditioned upon Brahmins to, to eat a vegetarian diet. This reflects kind of a crystallization of the caste structure in India. And is Absolutely. Not a, that was like, his belief. Yeah. And so yes. And it is, I continue because I'm, I'm with you and I think it's important this is shared. So please continue. Yeah. Well, because if you look in the very earliest Vedic texts, it's pretty clear that even Brahmins ate meat. And in fact, Brahmins were the ones who conducted the ritual sacrifice, which involved animal sacrifice. Thousands, possibly thousands of um, cattle or oxen right. or rhinoceros and peacocks. Right. So it was very clear that this happened during the Vedic period. And what happened is, is that Hinduism was strongly influenced by the development of Buddhism. And one of the main central tenets of Buddhism and also Jainism is this concept of ahimsa, which is nonviolence. And I think that the way this principle of nonviolence was applied became quite radical. I think originally it just referred to human-human uh, interaction, you know, trying to do the least amount of harm, uh, but became kind of solidified or crystallized within Indian culture and associated with good or virtuous activities or behaviors. But there's nothing like you refer to the Manusmriti, which is the, the, the codification of Hindu laws. The Karma Shastra of, of right. Manu, Manusmriti. Right. So when you look at the way Manu characterizes vegetarianism, is it's definitely described as not being a, a kind of a taboo food at all. But for those who are actively gay, engaged in meditation and, and spiritual activity, that they would derive benefit from not eating meat. And, you know, and so what this means is that, I mean, if you're a Brahmin, because now people are born into a Brahmin caste, they might not necessarily be uh, function as a priest. They may just have a government job or, or you know, just lead a regular life. Uh, that they there'd be no rule that they, according to Manusmrta, that they couldn't eat meat if it was in fact suitable for them. But the sort of concept that Brahmins uh, eat a vegetarian diet has sort of become crystallized, and it's this sort of inflexible structure. I mean, I know I have Brahmin friends in India, of course. It's kind of like the way Jews keep kashrut, maybe at home, everything is kosher, but they go and visit their friend and they eat bacon, yeah, but as long as it's not at their house kind of thing. So right. you know, I had friends who, yeah, they would, they would eat at their Muslim friend's house and have meat or, or whatever, but back at home, they kept kosher, right? And so it's a, it's a cultural 
social convention. It's not actually necessarily even a religious one. That, that, but it, it's, it's turned into that. And it's very interesting how this has evolved over time. It's primarily due to the influence of both Jainism and Buddhism and its influence upon Hinduism. And also the enormous upheaval that India has gone through beginning around the ninth century with successive waves of foreign invasion, primarily um, Muslims, but, but culturally like mostly the Turks who came in and, you know, the way they saw Buddhists and Hindus practicing was diametrically opposed to the teachings in, their, in the Quran. And so unlike their experience, say, in the Middle East, where if they were fighting with Christians or Jews, you know, they didn't engage in wholesale slaughter because these people were essentially the same as them. They maybe weren't following the correct prophet, but nonetheless, it was the same God, it was the same lineage. But when they came to the subcontinent of India and saw all these strange and bizarre practices, they were able to dehumanize the Hindus and Buddhists and unfortunately committed genocide. And this is a very sensitive issue that's never really been fully addressed. It is not an indictment at all of the many wonderful Muslim people that live in India now. It has nothing to do with that. But we have to admit that this happened. And as a result of this, this, this pattern of invasion and uh, social uh, destruction, that there was um, a crystallization of Hindu beliefs and practices to separate Separatist. yourself other, right? So, mm-hmm. so who are these heathens, uh, these brutal people coming in and killing our people? They're meat eaters. They, they, they believe these different things. Late well, shot. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be right. different. I'm going to uh, support and uphold the values of our spiritual tradition. And so then you had a crystallization of many different things, but including vegetarianism uh, and within, within the caste system. And so I, since the medieval period in India, there's been this progressive emphasis upon vegetarianism and in particular associated with uh, very specific Hindu practices, uh, Vaishnava practices, worship of Ram and Krishna. And so the many Hindus that uh, uh, base their faith on these practices align these practices with the practice of vegetarianism, which I personally have no issue with. I mean, I think people should be able to eat whatever they want. My only concern as a health practitioner is what is the most best suitable diet for you? And I certainly ascribe to the tenets of Ahimsa, but I also am aware that there's no such thing as complete Ahimsa unless you're willing to do what the Jain saints do, which is to starve yourself to death, right? Salekana. This is a a much vaunted, um, hallowed practice among the Jain saints where understanding that all food contains life and that you cannot eat without killing something that if this really is your belief and perspective, then the best thing you can do is to simply starve yourself to death and die. And that's what the, the Jain saints do. And that's based on a very specific kind of um, metaphysical perspective that the Jains have, which views the soul as a material substance. But that's different from Buddhism. That's different from Hinduism. Uh, they have a different perspective. So some of these ideas have kind of seeped in from Jainism and have influenced the practice of Hinduism as well. And, and therefore, when we're talking about the soul and the impact of things like vegetarianism or non-vegetarianism, this is that it has a direct physical impact upon 
the soul and future reincarnation, etc. But this isn't actually supported within Hindu or Buddhist metaphysics at all. Yes, um, I think this idea of purity, ritual purity, and purity in food, we see this in many religions. And this I and you know, cultures are defined by the food they eat and the foods that they don't eat. Certainly in India and with the influence of the really falling out of favor, perhaps, of the Brahmin priestly caste for the cost of um, involving them in temple ceremonies and weddings and everything like that, um, that there was a, a movement away from the, what would be considered Hinduism at that time and a movement towards Buddhism. And Buddhism, maybe it's oversimplified, just saying you can get there on your own. Right. You can have knowledge right now. And actually, you don't have to keep the fire. You don't have to keep the hearth. You don't have to do the propitiation to the deceased and the ancestors and the gods. You don't need to do it directly, nor do you need to do it through the priests. Just go. Just go. Um, go with God. You know, embrace his Buddhist ways. So this was very powerful. Obviously, Buddhism, I think, because it was proselytizing, um, traveled all over the world. It eventually found its way to Japan, um, but beginning in India. And so- It was really very egalitarian, right? So that was the wonderful thing about it for the people that were adhering to it was just that it didn't matter what your caste was, that everyone was essentially equal. So this was a quite a, a huge revolution- That's in right. Cultural practices in India at the time. And also um, even today in India, the the most converts to Christianity or Buddhism are low caste Hindus so that they can escape that association, which brings us back to food of being a dog eater. Um, And so people were defined, limited by the impure foods that they ate. And there was such a strict codification of behaviors and separate, you know, separate behaviors um, among these castes, which maintained the caste system. Um, And so even where I've read that because the, the, the kings took up Buddhism and they retired their standing armies, that the invading, the Muslim invasions had more success (laughs) in conquering India because it was no longer a martial um, a warring, they didn't have a warring faction. Yeah. So, um, radical adoption of Ahimsa had huge re- repercussions in society and essentially left India defenseless. And I mean, it, 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 you know, I, I'll have to admit and say that, you know, the Buddhist period in India also was one of the most peaceful periods India has, has ever known. So if India had been allowed to develop without these, uh, foreign invasions, then who knows how the culture would have evolved. But uh, very clearly within Hindu belief is this understanding, and it's articulated in the Bhagavad Gita, that in order to protect Dharma, you have to be willing to kill, right? And that is Arjuna's great conundrum, because he's 
put into this position where he has to do battle with his kinsfolk and he doesn't want to do it. And Krishna says, you have to, to protect Dharma. So, you know, there, there's a big difference there between Buddhist beliefs and Hindu beliefs. And also the orientation is very different too. I mean, Hinduism is oriented towards the support of the entire society and all the different elements. Buddhism has one very specific goal in mind, which is self-liberation. And that, as we can see, is sometimes is contradictory to the needs of society generally. Well, that's a great um, point and distinction. Um, thank you. So, yeah, I just want to say a little more about this politicization or the political aspect of the caste system, which is even, you know, the most popular ruling party of India, the BJP, is, you know, promoting vegetarianism, running on a, a ballad of so-called ancient, you know, hierarchy and purity, and um, also very unfriendly to non-Hindus or um, so-called low caste um, Hindus. So it, it goes on in this divisiveness and it just comes down to um, food and the, the way to distinguish like, well, these outsiders like the Christians and the Muslims eat cows and pigs and we don't, even though there is um, enough historical research to show that that's, that's not the case. That in, in living examples of this, if you, go right. to, if you go to Kerala, you'll find that there are Brahmins who are very devout, who have a very long ancestral tradition, who eat beef and are very proud of it. And it, it, it flies in the face of everything that BJP and you know, the, the Hindutva supporters say, which is that, that eating meat and beef specifically is articulated within the Vedas and they're just upholding these ancient practices. And the same thing with the Kashmiri Brahmins as well. So you'll find that there are contradictions, living examples uh, of where Hindus are, eat meat and believe that they're doing it and also supporting these ancient tenets of Hindu practices. Well, certainly in traveling through India, as you have done, um, one can see that India really, though it is a unified democracy, there's so many, there's, you know, tens of thousands of villages and village culture and um, if the, the, you know, maybe the naive uh, yoga student or s people who just don't know about India or, or Hinduism would imagine that India has always been this one great country. And that didn't really happen until the British left India. And up till that time, it was, you know, thousands of languages and thousands of different sizes of Rajputs and, you know, countries. Um, so there is a lot of diversity of ritual. Huge, huge amount. I mean, yes. What, like, like 14, 20 official languages and thousands of minor languages and even more dialects. Uh, it's really like uh, the European Union is, you know, India is, 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 is very similar in that regard because of the diversity of culture and practices. And unfortunately, what the political powers are doing in India is homogenizing the culture. And that causes a lot of cultural damage. And 
you know, there are, then there are classes of people such as the tribal peoples and the so-called untouchables, which, you know, don't even have a place within that. Increasingly, people like that are Muslim also find that, that it, their leaders are telling them they don't really have a place in India. And, and that's really sad because when I look at the teachings and practices of, of Hinduism at its highest, it embraces everyone, right? Regardless of practice and regardless of what they eat. And the great Hindu uh, and uh, spiritual teachers such as Kabir and um, a, a few others, even some of the, the, uh, the Sikh gurus, uh, admonished people for trying to make differences in what people ate, you know, and, and, and would say things like, you know, you make such a, a, a big issue out of like what this person is eating, but you're not looking at the, 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 the delusion by which you're making that judgment that, that puts you into some kind of separate category of holiness that really just undermines the values of which you claim. It brings, you know, it brings us to this, say, personal path of the yoga practitioner or the sadhaka, the spiritual seeker, or just the, in a, the Buddhist sense, the individual path, you know, of the individual. And so rather than following dogmas is to take sadhana, take practices, um, be educated, have wisdom teachers, and align in one's individual moral and ethical compass and exhibit that in as best as possible in all relationships or discourse um, that ultimately it's the individual consciousness that is seeking illumination. And the more illuminated or the less, at least let's say the less suffering one has as an individual, then the more compassion and friendliness, you know, Maitri and Karuna one can exhibit in the world and building community uh, from the family outward in that way. Yeah, yeah you would hope, right? That, that, yeah, that. I would hope. <laughs> I would hope. Um, I hope it's not all just for um, more, more yoga teacher trainings and more um, yoga photos or something like that, that with this growing um, interest in yoga and it really being part of the fabric of, you know, the West and growing in the East. Certainly Westerners have influenced uh, India through social media <laughs> that actually yoga is very exciting. When I first traveled to India in 1995 and people would always say, what are you doing here? And I'd say, oh, I'm interested in yoga, yoga vidya, Sanskrit. And they'd be like, the young people would be like, we're not interested in those things. We're interested in America. We're interested in, someone said to me once, we're not interested in that. We're interested in McDonald's and MTV. So, um, but yes, we, you know, hopefully there's, the tip of the spear might be this interest in yoga, but everything that follows through, let the knowledge come and the opportunity to be free from suffering. 
I know at the beginning of the Charaka Samhita, it says, you know, let each human have 100 years because that's how long it takes to, you know, have your Dharma Artha Kama Veda. That's how long it takes to eventually come to moksha, to liberation. And um, the first harm is to harm the self. So use this Ayurveda, use this knowledge to whatever, have a healthy paraphrasing, you know, to have good health and vitality. Um, so tell me how you, how you meet um, a new Western, you know, a new client, a new, um, or a new student at your school or someone who comes to you as a practitioner. How, how do you um, help them understand what Ayurveda is? I talk about Ayurveda is reflecting this concept of dharma. And, you know, dharma is a term that in a Buddhist or a Hindu context means something very specific. It refers to the teachings. But Ayurveda, when, when the term dharma is used in Ayurveda, it literally means the natural way of things. So Ayurveda is a naturalistic system. Everything about the practices of Ayurveda are inspired and drawn from our natural relationship with the earth to the sun and all the different cycles and rhythms that derive from that. And that's why when you look at other indigenous systems of medicine all over the world, they're remarkably similar to Ayurveda. And there's many examples of this. Even in North America in the 1800s, a system of herbal medicine arose in, in opposition to the practice of regular medicine at the time, which mostly consisted of bloodletting and mercury administration. Uh, this fellow named Samuel Thompson uh, discovered these principles of natural health and healing and began to apply them in his practice and developed a very rudimentary form of panchakarma uh, in, totally independently. And based on the fundamental duality of energy as described in Ayurveda, Virya, between hot and cold. And he understood that there's difference, that you know, heat is associated or synonymous with life and growth, and cold is associated with, with decay and degeneration. And so what we're trying to do is support the natural heat of the stomach, which is, is the same concept as that we find in Ayurveda. You know, we know that in, in, in Ayurveda, whenever I see a patient, the, my attention is drawn right away to Agni, to digestion, because if digestion isn't correct, then it doesn't matter what I give the patient, they're not going to get better. So it's the first thing that I assess. And it's, a, it's an important principle of practice in Ayurveda. So you find that the, the principles of Ayurveda, as sophisticated as they are, because Ayurveda has been around for thousands of years, and so millions of hours of, of empirical practice have gone into supporting its practices. But their core of those teachings is a naturalistic one. It's what you would arrive at if you just were observing natural phenomena and didn't have any specific knowledge of science. Because of course, science doesn't really teach us about these relationships, at least not in a direct kinesthetic way, which is, you know, for all practical purposes, what we're trying to do, because there's always unknowns within science. So Ayurveda is trying to provide us with a, a, a relational model that allows us to understand how we fit in context with all these different cycles and rhythms. 
So this is the, I think the most important thing that I try to articulate is that I am trying to align people with a natural rhythm and cycle. And this allows people the opportunity to, to really put themselves into a state of balance and harmony with the natural environment. And therefore the, the concepts that I use to support these different practices are very naturalistic and, and, and they can feel them in their body. So that's the other thing too, that I'm always emphasizing in my practice is that, you know, you're the best arbiter of how you're feeling, right? So really if something feels good and, or something feels bad, then, you know, that gives you information, right? And of course, there's something that we need to do about training uh, our sensory experience, because of course it might feel good to eat a bunch of ice cream, but <laughs> we know that maybe 20 minutes later, it doesn't feel so good. So it's when these good practices, these wise practices that we engage in lead to happiness and benefit, then we can have faith and confidence in them. And so that's what I try to, that's the first thing I try to emphasize when I'm introducing the, the concepts of Ayurveda. And then from there, the Tridosha Siddhanta, the, the wonderful model that we have of the three doshas of trying to understand the beginning, middle, and the end of things as it relates to digestion, to our lives, to you know, everything. It's, uh, it's a very powerful model. And are you beginning with the diet that the person has, their daily habits? <laughs> Go ahead. Someone turned the printer on. It was going to get very noisy. So I. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Continue. Um, okay. So um, talking about, um, so you're introducing this ideas of dharma, of this natural way. And, um, and then do you begin with an, an assessment of their, their schedule, their food, their, their symptoms there where do you where wh is the way that you share ayurveda with people does it suddenly look very indian for them no or no no well also you have to understand that i'm trained as a as a clinical north american medical herbalist so mm -hmm. supporting my practice of ayurveda is a fairly detailed understanding of anatomy and physiology and pathology. And so I take a case history. I, I will spend up to 90 minutes in an initial consultation with a patient and go through their case history. And it looks probably very similar to a very comprehensive case history that a doctor might undertake. And in fact, you know, most doctors don't even do that. Not uh, anymore, no. Used to. So like a doctor say from like 60 years ago, uh, I will get all of this case history information. And that's a very important component described by Taraka. One important component, the Trividya Pariksha in terms of gathering clinical data. So a case history, Aptopadesha, and then Pratyaksha, which is actually observing the patient. So if the patient has a problem with their knee, then I'm going to have them articulate it. I'm going to palpate it. I'm going to check it out. Same, you know, I may use different tools like a stethoscope or any other tool at my disposal that would help give me some objective understanding of, of the, the, the problem area. And then the third component of this Trividya Pariksha is Anumana, which is inference. And these are using special tests 
so in Ayurveda, we're using Nadi Pariksha, post-diagnosis, or tongue. And, you know, people think that, oh, you know, you can feel someone's pulse and you can determine all these different things about them. And it's true. But what Ayurveda says about Nadi is, is that it won't provide you with infallible information. It has to be rooted within physical observation and the case history. And if it's not, if you're just using Anumana techniques, because there are some practitioners that heavily emphasize that, then you won't necessarily come to the right answer. Just like another form of Anumana in a Western medical context would be blood tests of using surrogate markers to determine, say, the health of the thyroid or whether or not they have inflammation. We're not actually able to go inside the thyroid and look at it and see what's happening. Likewise, what's happening with inflammation, but we use these different surrogate markers that, we, that give us an ability to infer what's happening to those organs. But if, as many doctors do now, you simply rely on these inferential techniques, then the treatment you're likely to prescribe uh, could be wrong. And of course, in Western medicine, that has huge consequences because many of the drugs have a very narrow therapeutic window. So if it's too much or too low, then you can cause serious harm to the patient or they won't get any therapeutic benefit. So it's imp- so this is the, 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 the my approach is the case history, physical observation, and then these special investigative techniques. And in your, so your training at um, Dogwood Botanical, when people enroll in your school, are they enrolling to become herbalists or are they enrolling to become Ayurvedic coaches or Ayurvedic um, clinicians? It's a good question. You know, I'm, I've always been uncomfortable with labels mm-hmm. and maybe that just is reflective of my own experience because I have a hard time labeling myself. I mean, clearly I'm a white guy with blue eyes and you could make all kinds of inferences about me and my orientation and you'd probably be wrong on many of those different counts. So I find myself here on the West Coast, uh, the confluence of all these different cultural traditions and practices, you know, where I live and where I grew up in the city of Vancouver, I don't live there now, but I grew up there. There's a strong Chinese element. So I've always grown up with Chinese culture and love Chinese food and use a lot of different Chinese herbs in my practice. But do I call myself a Chinese herbalist? No, but I have a lot of sympathy and um, understanding of, of Chinese medicine and, and how to apply it in the, in the very specific way in which I do. So what I'm training people to be essentially are practitioners, to be holistic practitioners that are rooted within these different global traditions, uh, but uh, within also the context of Western biomedicine, because this is the culture in which we live. And if you're not fluent in those concepts, if you don't know uh, anatomy and physiology, like if, if your only understanding of anatomy and physiology is uh, Ayurveda or Chinese medicine, then you're not going to be able to talk to a medical doctor or a pharmacist. So you need to be rooted within the the culture that we find ourselves within, and then be able to draw from these different elements. For me, Ayurveda is the baseline of all these different energetic practices because I believe it's the most sophisticated, the most encompassing out of all the different systems. You know, it's it's been it's, it's really the old the world's oldest continuously practiced system of medicine. So it has so much riches to offer us. But at the same time, uh, I live here in the west coast of Canada it's very different place than South India, right? And 
So the people are different, the climate is different, the food's going to be different. And so I have to adapt those practices that I've learned in Ayurveda to where it is that I live. So what I'm training, essentially, I'm training people to be like me. I would call them clinical herbalists with a very strong background in Ayurveda and other traditional systems of medicine. So it's very, and the approach that I use is a very Socratic method of education. You know, in the traditional Gurukula style of education, of, as per Ayurveda, it wasn't, you know, bums in a classroom and a one-way flow of information from the teacher to the students where they're just open receptacles. I call this the Prussian model of education. It's, it's sort of modeled on this sort of 19th century uh, hierarchical co concept of the general at the front of the classroom dispensing these orders to the, to the, to the soldiers. But that's not the way medicine was originally taught. Uh, and so when I refer to this sort of Socratic method, it's about uh, discussion and about going over things, sometimes not in a linear way, but on, in a non-linear fashion. But nonetheless, to really explore a subject in its full detail and not simply just parrot information that you, you've been told to memorize. That's very interesting. And it's certainly much needed. We have, I have had those opportunities in India to be in great discourse um, with great teachers where I always felt quite thrilled that they would invite, you know, us into this. And certainly there's a great opportunity to learn there and that there always was an opportunity to question the teacher. Very often in India, at the end of a lesson, the teacher will ask, have you any doubts? <laughs> and <laughs> have you any doubts? And the, the student has the opportunity to say, uh, yeah, I don't really get this part or that part. I do have some doubts. And the doubts of the student sharing those doubts absolutely takes the discourse even deeper. And uh, the other students benefit from that because absolutely. They, might, they, might, they might not feel so bold to say they have some doubts, but in a, in a cooperative learning environment, unlike the academic environment where it's a competitive environment, in the type of environment that I teach in is it's, it's cooperative, it's mutually supportive. So if someone can't understand a concept, they're not getting it, then we're all gonna go back over that concept as best we can as time allows to make sure that they understand. And that includes also the students sharing their level of understanding to help with the erudition of the students. So I think that, you know, we got to get out of this kind of competitive model, this competitive top-down model of education. Uh, it, 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 it's really hampering the progression of human knowledge and we're seeing impacts all over the world. And we're even seeing it in Ayurveda because Ayurveda in India is not being taught according to this Gurukula model. They very much adopted this Western academic model. And so students are graduating from four-year programs, Ayurveda universities, with head filled with book knowledge, but without any practical knowledge. And that's sad. So there's a big difference, and I've mentioned this many times, between Gurukula-trained practitioners practitioners that have been studying Ayurveda from their guru or a series of guru since they were a, a young person and have, have this gradually evolving contextual knowledge versus someone that graduates from a university or college with a, with a, with a legitimate diploma who's supposed to be their superior, but in fact often doesn't know what they're talking about. 
that's not just unique to Ayurveda. We see it in naturopathic medicine. We see it in Western medicine. We see it. It's, it's a problem that's rife throughout uh, academia. And then what is happening for the population at large who simply wants to have vitality and energy and be able to participate in a life of meaning as they choose with, you know, health supports and mental clarity and everything like that. Um, then there is this competition, like which camp are people in? Are they in the paleo? Are they in the keto? Are in the vegetarian? Are they vegan? And there, it really is hierarchical and it's not helping anyone. It's actually hindering them. And what I felt when my health was pretty low and B12 anemia is really it's, it's real. It's like all the color goes out of the world. And um, there's a lot of um, anxiety and paranoia. It's, it's crazy. But what I did feel in having, let's say, poor health was that I felt more dependent, more reliant on my group, on my clan, on my community, because I, it's almost like I needed my clan and my community's support because I was so tired or weak or whatever it was. So we see people when they want to give, they need to move away from vegetarianism or veganism, whatever it is, because of all of this, you know, competitive nature of these different food alignments that um, people feel that they're turning their back on their friends or they're going to be ousted from the group, which actually does happen. We see these big, vegetarians or vegans, um, you know, being sort of thrown under the bus. Well, but, I, I certainly have experienced that. I mean, I, uh, not to a huge extent, but, <clears throat> you know, I, I, it's never been my goal or intention to be the poster boy for meat eating in Ayurveda, but it's something that's reflective of my own insight and practices. So, yeah, I think there has been sort of a lot of antipathy towards some of the things that I'm sharing even though it's very difficult to actually argue with me uh, uh, simply because of the evidence that I present. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy to run uh, counter to the prevailing opinions, but they're just that they're just opinions. And, you know, we, we know that um, humans tend to not think all that deeply about some of the choices that they make and the beliefs that they have and just kind of follow along uh, in, as part of the group. Um, and it does take people to challenge that so that we can move forward and progress. You know, and I just wanna say that even though I do think that meat eating is a part of the traditional practice of Ayurveda, um, I, there's n I have no support for the in industrial production of meat. Like, you know, I, I think that people probably eat way too much meat and they eat it irresponsibly as a hamburger or as a hot dog or as a, as a junk food, as an entertainment. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, ethically sourced uh, pasture raised meat that you're getting from local producers. Uh, and I, and that sort of ethos applies not just to meat, but to all our food. I think we need to yes. get a monoculture uh, approach to everything, you know, and, and start developing these kind of hyper local solutions. Great. Thank you so much. Well, I, and I absolutely agree with you and I'm glad that you clarified that. And I do want to thank you for 
um, all the research that you've done that's informed your, um, how you're sharing in the world and that through your wonderfully written blog, you had an impact on my life. And through me talking about this, um, a lot of other people, mostly women who were suffering quite seriously um, with concerns and felt that they had no one to go to to share this with. And so it created a cascade. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining me today. And underneath this video or podcast, wherever it's shared, I'm going to share information for how people can uh, get in touch with you. But why don't you just share maybe your two main websites with us right now before we say goodbye. Uh, my main clinic website is just my name, toddcaldicott.com. And folks can book appointments there through an online scheduler. And then the school, the Dogwood School of Botanical Medicine, the URL for that is dogwoodbotanical.com. We're actually going to be launching a brand new website. I was hoping this semester, but uh, you know, we got hacked and had some other issues. So we're going to be holding off on that for a little bit. But uh, this is the portal for all of the different educational opportunities that, uh, that I offer. Wonderful. Todd, thank you for joining me today. Thank, thank you, you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.